0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Saving rainforests from being cut down is a pretty good idea. Trees soak up lots of carbon dioxide, helping slow down climate change and benefit nature too. But investments that conserve and replant forests have faced intense criticism in recent weeks. The main accusations are that they don't lead to a big drop in deforestation, and that tradable carbon offsets from these projects are largely worthless. While these accusations have been widely panned as inaccurate and mischievous, they highlight the need for better understanding and governance of the forest carbon offset industry. So what is a forest carbon project? How do they work? And do they really make a difference on the ground? With us today, Todd Lemons and Jim Bricanik from Infinite Earth, which developed the Rimbaraya Red Project in central Kalimantan in Indonesia more than a decade ago. Welcome to the show, Todd and Jim.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Todd, tell us a little bit more about the Rimbaraya project and why the area forest that it protects is so important.
1: Rimbaraya forms a critical buffer zone to the Tanjun Puting National Park. And Tanjun Puting is the last high-density population of wild orangutans left in the world. And the that critical corridor that now makes up Rimberiah was slated for conversion to palm oil. In fact, it was actively being converted when we stepped in and acquired the concessions and was able to stop that conversion and, and save Rinbaria. Had that been cleared for palm oil, it would have exposed the entire eastern side of the park to fire and to you know into encroachment and. You know, would have provided a significant risk to Tanjun Puting. It also now creates probably the only legal and safe area for release of wild born, previously captive orangutans. There are hundreds of, of orangutans in captivity in rehabilitation centers like the one run by our partner, OFI, and there's nowhere to release them, which is a really cynical. And, you know, sort of depressing view for what amounts to perhaps 10% of the remaining population of orangutans that could have a chance at being released, but they're not existing anywhere to do so. Rimbaraya provides that safe haven, and we proudly have been able to release and rehabilitate and reintroduce about 50 individuals back into the wild.
0: And the, the project itself, of course, it's quite large. It's The total area is not quite – it's just a little bit smaller than the size of Singapore. And it has quite a sizable amount of carbon stored in it, right? It's on a peat dome, which if it had been cleared by for palm oil, that would have been – as you say, vulnerable to fire and probably would have released a huge amount of carbon emissions. So maybe tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So for the viewers who don't know the sort of the biology behind peat swamp forests or uh, or the chemistry, they are extremely high carbon density. They house more than 10 times the carbon of any other forest type. And so in the case of Rimbaraya, had that been converted, it would have released well in excess of 100 million tons of emissions. And so, obviously, preventing that conversion conserves that carbon store.
0: So, Jim, what has been the project's impact on the forest area over the past decade or so? I understand there are tree planting programs, building of fire towers, and training of village fire crews, for example, to protect the forest from fires, but also to enhance the tree stock.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the biggest impact has been removing the threat of the drainage and the, the burning of the remaining trees that's one of the misunderstood things of an avoided uh, deforestation project is that just by stopping what would have happened you produce amazing you know impact to the area you know to the forest area in conjunction with that we you know we've spent years and years and years setting up fire brigades we bring in professional forest fire experts to train And we have our teams throughout the area. So we'll have a central, north, and south. And each one has a brigade. We run drills for fires because that's really the biggest threat in the area. As well, we have a pretty robust or a very robust tree planting system set up where we've provided basically some livelihood as well by building nurseries in each of these areas as well. So we have very large nurseries that are growing these seedlings. And then we mobilize a lot of the community members and they obviously make money doing this as well. And they plant large, large swaths of degraded land and replant the native species trees. That's just some of what we've done, but the impact has been profound just by saving it from the initial threat.
0: Just continues a little bit more about the project, Jim. Maybe tell us also about the benefits, especially to local livelihoods. So I understand Rimberai employs about a hundred people in the in the area, uh, and also helps with local education and health programs. So there's a sizable sort of social benefit to this project as well.
2: Yeah, there really is. I mean, I could go on and on. We have so many. Some of the ones we're most proud of. Well, I guess it wouldn't be livelihood; it would be health. But we built a boat, a floating clinic, that is staffed with nurses and doctors that are work for the government usually or in the region, and we we have them scheduled to go up the river and they stop at each village and and treat the the communities with usually the children the elderly people i mean everyone obviously is able to see these doctors secondarily we you know again we employ quite a few of the community members a lot of them are engaged in conservation but some of them we also have started businesses or have seeded through microfinance several businesses one what's pretty interesting is a chicken farm business so and most of these are run by women. And when you when you show up there, they've got these huge pens and they're basically raising the chickens. And so they'll either sell the chickens uh, once they're full grown to the local people and they make money that way. They'll sell the eggs and it becomes a sustainable business for them and it employs uh, numerous people. We've installed wells in most of the communities now, and those are also run as a business The business side of it is them delivering the water or them pumping the water for people but primarily it just it has changed their lives by giving them access to clean water whereas before they were actually drinking out of the river and getting all kinds of ailments so those are just a few of the the community uh, activities but there's quite a few more
0: that's great so just back to you todd you touched on the amount of carbon emissions that could potentially be saved by actually saving the project itself so Tell us a little bit more about that in terms of how red projects like this make a difference in fighting climate change by avoiding large amounts of carbon emissions from being released.
1: Yeah, you know that there's so much focus lately and there seems to be a bias almost on, you know, this idea of new removals and employing technology and so on. And yet just avoiding the emissions in the first place seems uh, to be the obvious priority. It also is the most efficient mechanism by protecting not only the carbon stocks that are currently stored in that forest, but by leaving that sequestration mechanism in place, Uh, biodiversity benefits and social benefits aside, the forest is actually our, our most efficient mechanism for fighting climate change. And yet, you know, we find ourselves often under attack and and under scrutiny lately. And uh, it baffles me as as to why.
0: That is a key question, right? I mean, trees and forests are one of nature's most efficient tools to take up carbon and recycle carbon. It's a natural process. And yet we seem to be not very good at protecting them. And that sort of leads into the next question, Todd, as to just how complex doing these RED projects, as they're called, you know, they take a long time to develop uh, if they're done right. Uh, They have to be regularly audited and the report's published online, so there has to be transparency around that. So take us a little bit through the verification and auditing process, which is quite involved and costly, I understand.
1: It, It is. I mean, the development of a project like this is budget of probably $5 million on average. The auditing process annually is, depending on the size and complexity of the project, somewhere between a quarter of a million to half a million dollars a year. And it's an incredibly rigorous process. The entire process takes about nine months to a year. So literally by the time, you know, so we, we start preparing for an audit, we submit the initial set of documents to the auditor, they do a desk review. There's, Usually, a lot of questions um, and clarifications. Eventually, a field visit is scheduled. They come out and spend a week in the field to verify, you know, the the data that we've submitted. They go back. There's a whole other round of questions and additional requests for documentation, and then a final audit report is submitted to Vera, which then conducts its own verification. So, literally, by the time we finish an audit, we are almost immediately starting to prepare for the next one. You know, these methodologies have been peer reviewed and open to public comment prior to them being approved. As you mentioned, the audit documents are online and transparent. Again, it baffles me the level of scrutiny over whether these projects are actually contributing to climate change when, you know, particularly in the case of Rimbaraya, it's irrefutable. You know, the Rimbaraya originally started at 101,000 hectares, David. And by the time it took us about three years to perfect our rights and defend the rights that we had acquired when we acquired the concessions. And in that sort of period prior to the actual finalization of our concession, the Palm Oil Company to the north had illegally deforested another 35,000 hectares, which is why we're left today with 65,000. So, you know, there's no question about what would have happened to this forest and to these carbon stocks in the case of Rembaraya. There's no question about its additionality. You know, certainly we believe based on the 10 years of auditing that we've undergone and the accolades that we've achieved, you know, having earned a triple gold under the climate, community, and biodiversity standard and having earned the highest score possible under SD Vista and being certified to contribute to all seventeen SDGs we think that, you know, the contributions are self-evident or the benefits are self-evident as well.
2: You know, what, one thing to add, David, is we just recently were the first project to go through Indonesia's system, which is an SRN system. They audited a part of the original project, which is the concession. It's about 36,000 hectares. That was extremely rigorous in and of itself. It took months and months, uh, although they were quite efficient we've been validated and are scheduled to be verified under that system. So, you know, I think there is a big misunderstanding as to how rigorous these audits are. They're rigorous both with Vera and now with SRN, I would say equally rigorous.
0: Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Yeah, I mean, that's, part of the global push, I guess, towards greater integrity and transparency, and obviously the drive towards higher quality offsets, right? There needs to be that certainty for investors uh, and buyers. But that leads me also to, there are still some concerns around forest carbon projects that, you know, the forest might still be burned down. That's, that can still happen, of course, in, in a very bad dry season, or still illegally cleared. So from your experience, is that fear really justified, not just for rimbarai but for other forest carbon projects, and what could be done to reduce the risks?
1: Again, I think that's a misunderstanding, David. I mean, so that, that issue is the issue of what's called permanence. So all projects are audited and credits are issued in a ex-post accounting approach, which means that we, our original baseline and our original verification proved that there were 132 million tons of carbon stored in Rimbaraya and that unequivocally those would have been lost. Uh, in our case, uh, the Palm Oil Company who originally owned the concessions had submitted a conversion plan to convert the entirety of Rimbaraya in five years. So, you know, our project life is a 30-year project life. So well before our project life those emissions that forest would have been lost all the biodiversity would have been lost 10,000 people would have been moved out and the 130 million tons would have been lost but again for conservativeness and this this speaks to the rigor of, of the you know the entire standard and in industry is that we are given credit for that 130 2 million tons, only in increments of 1 30th over a 30-year period. You know, we've now been at this since 2009. So we're, we're well past the five-year period where that forest and those emissions would have been lost. And yet, every year, we're still getting just 1 30th of the credit. And even that, this year, if we were to begin and undergo a verification this year, it would be only for last year's emission savings, if you will, right? So we have to actually finish a year. We have to have the full set of satellite data. We have to prove that, you know, the carbon stocks are still there from the previous year. And so obviously we can't even do that until the end of the year. So we don't really get started with an audit until the end of the first quarter of the year following the the crediting period. And so essentially by the time that the credits are issued and we are selling those credits and corporations are buying them, they're buying something that's already happened. Number one, right? Whatever happens in the future doesn't erase the fact that those credits that we are issued in arrears, you know, we still avoided those emissions for those years, right? Uh, Those previous years. Secondly, in the case of Rimbaraya, because of the type of forest it is, 95% 95% of the carbon stocks are below ground. So we could actually suffer a catastrophic fire and still only lose say 5 maybe 10% of total carbon stocks. Um because you know most of the carbon stock are underground. So the only way to lose those would have been actually through conversion because what happens in the conversion process which is far more bigger impact on carbon stock than even a fire is that they dig 2 meter deep canals throughout the forest complex area what used to be forest in order to drain the peat swamp forest in order to to be able to plant the oil palms and as they drain all of that all of the carbon that protected for you know thousands of years is now exposed to oxygen so carbon plus oxygen equals co2 and and other emissions And so you get far bigger carbon fluxes through the conversion process than you do even with, you know, with a large fire. So just a final question.
0: There's been a lot of criticism and reservations expressed about the quality and integrity of forest carbon projects. So Jim, what's your final sort of views on this?
2: You know, again, having lived through these audits time and time and time again, and knowing how conservative they are and how rigorous they are, while I'm sure there are exceptions, And I'm sure quality can always be improved. I would say, in general, the rigor is more than sufficient. I think what concerns me again is this misunderstanding of the importance of avoiding deforestation and the idea that all we need to do is plant trees. Number one, it takes quite a long time for those trees to grow. And while that's occurring, uh, forests are being lost. The second thing is that by avoiding deforestation, you're protecting the biodiversity. You're protecting the community's access to these forests. I mean, these forests have so many other benefits other than CO2 uh, sequestration. And when I go through Rimbarai and I look at this forest, knowing it would be gone, and knowing that these people that have been living there for generations would have no access to this forest, and knowing that these orangutans and the other biodiversity in the region would have nowhere to live, I am perplexed that anyone even questions whether we should be avoiding forests. And then the second question is how high the bar is for proving that this is under threat. The fact is, almost all forests are under some threat. Um, That's just, you can just go back historically and look at the the march toward the deforestation in any country. It's not hard to see. And so, if anything, we should be promoting uh, the protection of these forests and the financing of their protection through market mechanisms. That's, that's my strong opinion.
0: Thank you very much for joining us today. You've made some really great points about certainly the fundamental values of preserving forests to fight climate change. I think in an ultimate sort of good world, we wouldn't need to have market mechanisms to, uh, to save forests. We would just do it naturally anyway. But uh, I guess we don't live quite in that world just yet. So thanks very much, Todd and Jim, for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you very much. Appreciate it.